Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the show. Gosh, uh, today is going to be a very important, a very meaningful conversation. As we record today, we're still in the throes of this global pandemic. We're still deep into very uncertain economic times that are causing a lot of angst and a lot of confusion. And we're also in the midst of a very complicated dialogue around race and equality. These are strange, strange times. And today's guest is a gentleman who, once you recognize who it is, will not be surprised to know he's done a lot of thinking and a lot of writing about these times and how we should be positioning ourselves and doing some things, smart things to really survive and thrive in these times. In fact, I'll suggest that the work he's done his entire career has set us all up very well to do well in these strange, strange times. So let's welcome back to the show, Tom Peters, a best-selling author and management thinker. Tom, welcome back, my friend. Thank you very much. The only thing I resent about your introduction is you said it was going to be a great hour. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take all day if you got it. So we have plenty oh, okay. to talk about. So gosh, uh, I don't know where to begin. The audience obviously knows all they need to know about you and your background and the important work you've done. So we don't need to dive too much into our biographies. Uh, I guess we'll just, these are just some funky times. There's a lot of angst out there. And I think it's going to be comforting and uh, reassuring for a lot of folks to kind of hear from you and and share some wisdom and all that. I guess where I want to lead off on an optimistic tone, my intro was almost doom and gloom, but despite these challenging, stressful times, there's a lot of cool opportunity here, isn't there? Well, yes. Forget for a moment whether you can fill the tables at your restaurant or what have you. There is a rare opportunity for you and me as human beings, and it has to do with the way that you and I behave way back since March or something and on forward for a while. And my hard-nosed version of it, which is completely consistent with your positive version, is what you do, and let's just for the hell of it call it a six-month period, what you do for this six-month period will define who you are as an adult human being. It's, you know, General Eisenhower did this and he did that and did the other. He was defined by the D-Day landing on June the 6th, 1944. And whether you are age, I won't say 21 or something like that, let's talk to people who are maybe boss-ish. And what I mean, you have a half a dozen people you're responsible for. If you are responsible, well, you are. You're responsible for your family. And that's, in a way, the biggest conflict, which I don't think is a conflict. You're, and boy, how many people am I stealing from? Millions. Your number one responsibility in life, not yourself, that's egocentric, is your family, your neighbors in the community. And my belief is that any organization is a community. And so the community called your two-person accountancy, your 12-person 10-table restaurant, your 
$100 million division with 1,000 employees, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you said it in a way in your introduction, and this sounds incredibly self-congratulatory. It's what the hell I've been saying for the last 43 years since we started the research for Research of Excellence. Take care of the people, and a lot of good things will happen. A, you will be able to look yourself in the mirror when you become an old fart like me, and B, your bank account will be solid. But it is, it is for leaders, and we are all leaders, it is a defining moment. And I'm going to use language I shouldn't use, but I'll use it anyway. Please don't be an asshole. <laughs> I wrote this thing. I don't think it was something we sent you in its entirety because it didn't exist until yesterday. And I called it the Leadership Six, S-I-X, for COVID-19. And the Leadership Six was be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, walk in the other person's shoes. And I would be total biggest jerk on earth if I said I thought it was a pretty good list, but I actually think it's a pretty good list. Well, and and the point list. again, that's what I've been saying for 40 years, and I want to put it aside, but not put it aside, over the long term, it's a good way to make money. Well, I mean, if you're incredibly decent to your people and your people, I mean, John DeJulius, who is a great, well, he owns a bunch of spas and he's a great customer service, you know, trainer, basically said, your customers will never be any happier than your employees. And if you're taking really great care of the people you work with, then commercially speaking, they will be taking care of the customers. There's just, it just pisses me off. And it's probably why we should shut down all the MBA schools in some respects. And I'm almost serious about that. It was this wonderful thing. Henry Mintzberg is a great management guru, Canadian, reported on this study. And in the study, if you were a professional school graduate, like an engineer or an MBA, and I have both, and you are a philosophy major, I'm given twice as many job offers as you are at twice the pay. 20 years later, I'm working for you. And, you know, the, the point was it was the English majors and the philosophy majors and the theater majors who know that humanity is the essence of it, you know, not the ability to uh, code faster than the person sitting next to you. It's always been all about people, and, and now it's don't F around. It really, really is about people. And it is your defining moment. And that's meant to be the hardest no statement that I could possibly make. But it's not just the defining moment in the notes I received. You said it's the defining moment of your career, but I think it's the defining moment of our lives. Oh, this, yeah. yeah. This I, is where we can really, it's almost right. like a do-over. There's yeah, a there's chance to just completely rethink deal. ourselves. The uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks who is a conservative, he used to be a conservative Republican, and he left the party for various reasons, which shall not be mentioned. He wrote a column, and he distinguished between what he called resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And the resume virtues, of course, are I went to Yale, and I was promoted six times by the age of 30, and you know I live in a big house in the Hamptons or some such equivalent from Omaha or what have you. The eulogy virtues, as he said, are the things they say about you at your funeral. And what they say about you at your funeral was he was really a decent person. He always went out of his way to help people. I mean, I love it because it's compact. Resume virtues, eulogy virtues. And as I keep saying, eulogy virtues actually contribute to your resume and your, uh, your net worth and actual fact. Well, when you're lying on your deathbed, you're not spouting off all the awards you won in the office. Uh, you're, you're talking about how the community 
responded to you and, and what you meant to them. You know, as you said, I'm trying, I just want to just want to interrupt one because of one word you used, and I didn't use it enough until this crisis came along. I think it was implied, but I have fallen desperately head over heels in love with the word community because I am looked it up. But community means we exist to support each other. I mean, I got in a little bit of a pissing match on Twitter this morning when somebody said, don't tread on me. I don't have to put a face mask on. And we'll forget the political side of it. I said, look, if I understand it correctly, which I think I sort of do, the only difference between apes and human beings was our ability to figure out how to be in communities where we work together and support each other. And so this idea of you supporting me and me supporting you, I mean, that's the only reason you're not grunting like an ape. And the other part of it, which is what annoys me with an awful lot of what's going on is, and here I'm really being again sophisticated, the root word for civilization is civil. And civil is, to me, a synonym for you and I to disagree. Like, you know, I think you're the stupidest idiot in the world. And you think I'm the stupidest idiot in the world. But we treat each other with incredible human respect, which as far as I'm concerned, everybody except Osama bin Laden and a handful of others deserve. Well, when I think of Tom Peters, I think of uh, people first. You've been espousing that for most of your career. And the cynical way I could ask the question is, well, why do we still need to talk about it after all these years? But let me put it in this context. Thinking about George Floyd and this sudden, as a result of that tragedy, we're having a very, very comprehensive discussion nationally, globally around, around race. Is the same scenario of what the, the whole thing, the pandemic, the economic struggles, and this discussion on race, what happened to George Floyd in the discussion that ensued, it was kind of like, all right, we've been talking about race and, and the need to talk about it for, for generations, but we haven't made any progress. But suddenly there's a flashpoint, and now, we're, now there's real movement. Is that same idea going to happen with people first? Was this the global challenge that we needed to finally recognize that, all right, people first really is what we have to do? I mean, is this the moment maybe to finally sink in permanently? My only honest answer is I agree with everything you said, and I hope so. You know, it's one of those things where I don't want it to last any longer for obvious reasons, but I'd like to have it last enough so that it really does sink in. But I hope it is a defining moment for those ideas. You know, since I'm an old fart, I can get irritated as hell, and I'm quoting people who are smarter than I am. A lot of our inequality and so on can be dated back to 1970 when Milton Friedman wrote a single paper that led to the maximization of shareholder value movement, which is a wonderful way to get rich shareholders to get rich in the next 90 days, but is a destroyer. And even some people like the conference board are starting to understand that. You can be a capitalist pig, but we can't live with the inequality. And it really is totally out of control. But no, I want to digress and we don't need to necessarily follow this or not. I was in the middle of the civil rights movement. I was working in the Pentagon for the Navy at the time, of, meaning Washington at the time of the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination and then riots. I taught on the side one of the first courses at Stanford in 1971 on how to get beyond the level of discrimination. And the thing that's amazing to me, and I think you were implying this, is I thought we'd gotten it done. 
And if you are my age and went through that first civil rights movement, you survived Selma and were not misbehaving as badly as we did before then. I thought we got that deal done. And, and I'm really blown away by how far we have to go. And I'm really blown away by terms that are a little bit edgy, white privilege, because that couldn't possibly be me. But of course it is. And I don't just think that, I mean, that's the definition of the white privilege thing. It's stuff you and I take for granted. I mean, there's this wonderful thing. It was a horrible thing. And you probably watched a couple of them on YouTube, too. One of them is somebody trying to do something with a bike lock in Central Park, and it's two actors. One is white and one is black. And the white one is getting help from people, and the black one is having the cops called on it. And then the one that I really and loved, obviously people will understand the translation, that this one guy did, and I thought it was absolutely fabulous. He picked up a television. He wasn't in, a, in the rural area. He wasn't in the middle of downtown. Picked up a white guy, picks up a television, and he carried it around for an hour. And, you know, he said, the only thing anybody did is a whole bunch of people came up and said, wow, that looks heavy. Can I carry it a couple of blocks? And his point, obviously, if uh, you had been born black as opposed to white, you may very well, excuse the language, have had the shit beaten out of you long before that hour elapsed. And it's stuff like that. that I, of course you knew it. And of course I knew it. But the positive thing to me about the George Floyd thing is, boy, I mean, and like your point about the people first, maybe we can really deal with that part of it. Or at least we can wake up. I, I, I said to somebody, the two most incredibly important success factors for me happened at birth, and they were white and male. And that took care of the first 95%, and the rest was details. And in my case, I was born a Protestant, which mattered a lot in 1942. And I was born of intelligent parents, which meant the odds were reasonably high that I wouldn't be a dummy. I often said I despise mass murderers. I despise spouse and child abusers, but number three on my list is successful people who think they deserve their success. I am here because of blind ass luck, including that book that people remember called In Search of Excellence, which I am willing to admit was a pretty decent book, but the timing gods landed on Bob Waterman and my shoulders. The week the frigging book came out, Unemployment hit 10% in the United States for the first time since the Great Depression. As I put it, the business books went from the back of the bookstore to the front of the bookstore, and suddenly it was a hot topic. I mean, you know, it was, it was a good book. We worked our asses off, and Bob, not me, was a pretty good writer, so it was just a fine book. And then the Lord came in, and he did this little wand-waving thing, and that was the difference. It wasn't because I was smarter or worked harder, for God's sakes, I worked at a place like McKinsey, where working harder than any sane human being is kind of you know, entry-level stuff. I want to go back to this discussion around community. When I was reading your papers that were compiled around to help us think about COVID-19, your discussion of community was the biggest forehead smack for me. And I, the beauty of, if there is anything we can call the beauty of the pandemic, it is helping us realize the importance of our local community and our neighbors and our schools and our teachers and our churches and, and that network around us. Uh, we've come together in a way that, that's been good. The, frankly, discussion of racism uh, has made us look at our, our communities around us uh, in a different way which is obviously hard, but important. But I don't think most people think about or communities in their, their organization, their, whether they're 
work in a large corporation or a small mom and pop or in a nonprofit. Because there's probably some gritty, hardcore business guy who looks to you for management advice and, and says, well, community, that's not my job. Talk about this idea of community. Because I think that's profound here. Yeah. I'm going to start with the individual part and then get to the community. And we're talking to that person who's running the whatever. I've got a million slides and I have one that is my favorite. And it comes from the, I don't even know whether he's still alive, movie director, Robert Altman. And he won a Lifetime Achievement Award. And in his acceptance speech, and I was actually at home, and this is, you know, 20 years ago, writing it down with a paper and a pencil. In acceptance speech, he said, the role of the director is to create a space where actors and actresses can become more than they have ever been before, more than they have ever dreamed of being. And that last line, more than they have ever dreamed of being. And so I believe the entire role of the leader is to create a community, to create a space where I can become more than I have been. But just like theater, you know, and I did a little, my major acting was bit parts in high school. But in theater, I mean, that on stage thing is a community. And, you know, my ability, one microsecond at a time, whether I'm a $20 million a year person or a two cent a year person, is the degree to which I support my fellow actors who are on stage. And to me, and, and this is important in not only work from home, but also the nature of things, this is true for a seven person, 90 day project team that includes people from five different organizations and three different countries. You know, I was born and raised a Presbyterian. I am not going to tell you that I darken church doors very often, but it is, it's, it's what I like to call lowercase r, religious. It is, you know, just a belief that you're here to help your fellow human beings. And one of the things that you're saying, and let's talk to the big businessman in this regard, is... Every country in the world, the numbers are the same, which is bizarre. 70 to 85% of people are not engaged with their work. And the number one reason is not that it's Nigeria or Canada, not that it's high tech or low tech, but it is the quality of their boss. And you may have seen it in one of the papers. I said the number one asset of any organization is the first line supervise or supervise ors. Imagine the Navy for four years. You know, it's a, it's a throwaway line. The Navy is run by the chief petty officers. The Army is run by the sergeants. And there's a one-liner I found from some famous combat colonel, and he said, the role of the commanding officer is to support his sergeants. And when I, <laughs> I was in the Navy as a combat engineer in, in Vietnam, and we would have these convoys and we were going out on a job, and I always rode in the first Jeep. And somebody said, well, that's egocentric. I said, that's total bullshit. If I'm the, you know, somebody minds me, that ain't a problem. My chief petty officer is in the last chief because he's the one who counts. I'm just a 24-year-old piece of meat. But I really do want to emphasize this for the cynics. And I've been working on issues with more women in leadership for about 25 years. And what I've said when I'm giving speeches is I don't care whether you are a radical feminist or a miserable, shriveled up misogynist, 
women buy all the products. And if you can figure out how to be inclusive that way, you'll make money, dude. And this is terribly important. And I know, you know, we don't have a whole lot of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And it doesn't really matter. Maximize shareholder value means the entire world is focused on the next 90 days, period. And if I have to toss you over the side to make sure that my quarterly earning is 17 cents instead of 16 cents, I will gladly do so. Those old brothers and sisters of mine at McKinsey did a study of something like 700 companies over a 40-year period, and they used a whole bunch of measures on who invests the most in their employees, who invests the most in their R&D, and the long-term people just destroy the short-termers in terms of bottom-line long-term performance. Not only could you look yourself in the mirror, but they could afford to send their kids to the University of Tennessee, and it's really huge. You're not, you know, there was one from healthcare that I loved, and it was some people were writing about patient-centered care, but they're wonderful one-liners. They said, not only is kindness free, but it makes money. Because if a patient is pissed off, has a chip on their shoulder, they're going to be bugging the nurses and bugging people and sucking up an insane amount of time. If I really treat you with the respect that you deserve as a patient, that means you're not going to have problems, but the odds are I'm not going to be a troublemaker. So, you know, Go ahead, be a son of a bitch, but treat people well, and, and it'll really work for you. So that's the part I really don't get. I'm not asking you to go to mass five days a week. I'm asking you to be self-interested by following that John the Julius thing. Your customers will never be any happier than your people are. And I think that's a very legitimate one-liner, incidentally. And I think that's as true for getting robots for a minute. I think it's as true for an auto parts factory as it is for a restaurant downtown. You know, I remember reading about Chernobyl and there are a huge number of political things and so on and so on and so on. But at the end of the day, the technology had been trained to do too much of the work and the people hadn't been trained to do enough. And people didn't know how to react to a crisis. And even with all the advances in artificial intelligence, we're a lot farther along, but we ain't there. I mean, I always think of, what was his name? Sully Sullenberger, the guy who, you know, the plane, the, the plane in the middle of the Potomac. And I love it. And it also goes back to where you and I started. He loved aircrafts. He loved flying. He flew forever and ever and ever. His entire life was defined by doing the right thing in a 15-second period. That was the beginning, and that was the end. Somebody once said to me, we shouldn't be paying pilots $250,000 a year. And I said, I don't know. I want them to do that one time when the computer breaks down, that one time when the 737 MAX is not doing what it was supposed to do. And unfortunately, the people driving that one were unable to recover, but that's what you're paid for. Right, right, right. 15 good, you know, you're 65 years old, 70 years old, you're a retired pilot. You were paid for 15 seconds. Yep. I want that guy on that wall when that time comes, no doubt about it. So, I want him to be Sullenberger, who gave a damn about flying. And even though he was in his 50s, he trained and he learned and he studied the new stuff. And he got off on flying. And he was a hell of a student who really cared about what he did. And that's enormous, too. Because I, I think particularly with the incursions of, in this case, artificial intelligence over the next 20 years, you got to stay smart and stay ahead of the curve. My wife and I had a 
compressor breakdown on our uh, old refrigerator. It's one of those sub-zero refrigerators. And the appliance guy who came to fix it has a little four-person company. And ours was too old. He said, I can keep it alive forever. God bless it. But he and I got chatting. And I would guess he was 42, 43, 45, something like that, six-person thing. And he had just gotten back on his own nickel from a six-day training course on the Internet of Things. And the only way that he can stay a step ahead of the technology and the only way that he can keep his six guys employed is to be at age 46, a devoted Sullenberger-like student. Well, that's a good segue into another discussion. In your papers, you said this is a good time to kind of rethink how you train your people, right? I mean, this is, there may not be a better time than an opportunity to kind of rethink that whole process uh, within an organization, right? Yeah. I think if I'm correct about what you were looking at, I think I stole that from Mark Cuban, actually, <laughs> who said, obviously, you've got a million things on your mind. And this is a little bit cynical and it's a little bit wrong, but it's mostly right. He said, instead of another 12 hours looking at Netflix, which is great if you're doing your kids and your family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it's a good time to take, I mean, you can take an online course for anything in the world now, or you can buy a book or what have you, but to get better at what you do. And he made the practical point that given the unemployment issues, et cetera, the competition to fill job slots when they become available again is going to be tougher and tougher. And if you stand out from a qualification standpoint, it obviously increases the odds. Talk about empathy for a second. I think most of us suck at being empathetic. And I think if we can understand what it truly is, practice it and deploy it in our lives with our families, our neighbors, our communities, our businesses, it can change everything. It can change how we get through this, this pandemic. It can change how we ride through these tough economic times. It can have a big impact in our thinking about this discussion on racism. So talk about what that is and why that's so important today. Yeah, we can spend the rest of our time together <laughs> on this productively because I'm not that sure I can make you better at it if you have a deficit. But let's go the whole nine yards. First of all, and I'm royally pissed off I didn't have it available when I wrote my last book, even though it was out there, Google did a study of their top employees and a study of their most innovative teams. And it was a Google study, no bullshit, 15 years worth of data, 87 variables and so on. The top eight traits of the top individual Google employees, seven of them were soft stuff. I respect you, I listen to you, I worry about my teammates, and number eight at the bottom of the top eight was the STEM stuff. And then they did the same study, except now we're looking at teams. And Google, for whatever you think about them, is one of those groups of idiot companies that divides people into A players and B players, which is one of the most successful motivation tools in the world because you instantaneously demotivate 50% of your employees. But the thing was, in terms of innovation, the B players beat the hell out of the A players. And they beat them for the same thing. Their eight factors and seven, the first seven factors are soft. And you look at an A, play, an a player at Google, graduated from Stanford with a 4.7 grade point average. He has an IQ of 376, and he knows it. 
And, you know, literally one of the things on the list of the bad guys was no intellectual bullying. But I loved it that at Google, the soft stuff just wiped out the hard stuff. So I want to go at it in two different ways, and we'll do the hard part second. If you want empathy, hire for it. And if you want empathy where it counts, promote for it. That's my step number one. One of the people I did quote in the last book, his name is Peter Miller. He runs a middle-sized biotech, super sexy. It's not a startup. It's middle-sized by now. And he was asked kind of the question you asked me. He said, we only hire nice people. And he said, okay, I'm in sexy biotech. And I need people who have a PhD in something that you and I probably can't even pronounce the name, molecular biology cubed or something like that. He said, let me tell you a little secret. There are actually a lot of them out there. Don't hire the jerks. And, and he said, doesn't matter whether it's receptionist or whether, you know. And, and then the, to ice the cake, which I love, is I'm Peter Miller, and you're the candidate, and I interview you, and you do have that 4.9 grade point average in the most incredibly sexy and sophisticated field of the human kind. I fall in love with you, and I would desperately, I am the CEO and the founder, I would desperately like to hire you on the spot, but I can't because you have to, his term, not my term, you have to run the gauntlet, and that means when you leave my office, you're going to do 10 interviews with the receptionist, with the junior person in the finance department, with a fellow scientist from R&D, and all 10 of those people have, and I'm using again his language, not mine, all 10 of those people have blackball authority. I'm so in love with you that I just want to walk down the hall hugging you. But if the 26-year-old in the finance department, you come in, Mr. 277 IQ, and act like an asshole, 26-year-old Tom in the finance department says, bye-bye, baby, and you're toast. And so I think you should hire for EQ in 100% of jobs. That's for starters. I don't agree with you that most of us are low on it. I think to some extent, and I don't want to go too far with this, for some extent, for those of us like me with professional degrees, I have two engineering degrees and two business degrees, it's driven out of us. You know, I learned to love spreadsheets more than I love you. And so I'm arguing that I might have had a pretty good empathy score thanks to my mom and pop and, and so on and a great fourth grade teacher. But now I've learned that, well, it's that horrible thing with, you know, my favorite six words, hard is soft, soft is hard. You know, I've learned, get your numbers right. And if you don't get them right, I'm going to come in and just pound the crap out of you. I'm not sure you're that person. I have a sneaking suspicion if I was able to teach you that kindness is free and a great way to make money, that maybe we could bring it out of you a lot more. But if you really are a shithead, I'm not sure I can turn it around, or even if I thought I could, I'm not sure I have the time. Because I have a nine-table restaurant or a 23-person IS consultancy and this is, again, Mr. Miller. He said, I believe in our corporate culture so much that I know that one bad apple spoils the bushel. And so I can't have a really low IQ. Well, it's that one-liner that people have used with me a million times. You know, one person in a shitty mood can completely turn off a team. And, you know, it's true. So if you didn't have it, I'm not sure. I, I think in a great place I could release a lot more of it. I don't even know how Goldman 
measures the EQ thing. I know what it's about, but I've never cared that much about it. But if there is some measure and you score in the bottom 10%, I don't think I can get you up to the top 25%. But even in that case, maybe I can get you from the 10th percentile to the 30th percentile and you can be a much better teammate than you were before. Yep. The other part of it, which I really want to focus on, or I mentioned in the gig economy, and I just said wonderful things about the air conditioning guy who went and did the Internet of Things course, which I believe in the gig economy, my term for it is the days of suck up are gone. We are in the days of suck sideways. In the gig economy, I worked with you and now you're doing something else. But you remembered that, yeah, I was pretty damn smart, but I was a hell of a teammate. And you're the one who gets a cool job and you're going to call or text or something. You say, Tom, I'm doing the hottest shit thing in the world. You know, it's in the last six months. I'd really love to have you with me. But I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it partially because of your IQ. Because in my thing, I can't afford to have somebody who doesn't have the technical training. But it's what's he like to work with? Does he support his teammates? I'm going to have a 10-person team with a crushing deadline. I can't afford assholes. We have to support each other. And when the shit hits the fan, I have got to drop my important task and help you out so we can get to that next milestone before the client shoots us. Yep. And that's contrary to so much thinking, but I'm hoping we're at that precipice where people are beginning to understand that. Uh, I want to enlist you on a cause uh, that's been my lifelong effort in trying to get people to read more freaking books, Uh, looking at the wall behind you and just listening to you through this conversation, citing all these references and individuals. You got all that from reading books. Talked about that in your paper that, and especially if you're stuck at home right now, what a great time to take advantage of all the wealth of knowledge out there. And, you know, instead of watching Netflix, dive into some books and learn some stuff and round out your thinking. I mean, this is a great opportunity to do that, right? Yeah, I would say you're talking to the wrong person. My mother started me on that at the age of five. I don't have any choice. It's an addiction. But the little story I told in the last book is I was at dinner. Here where I am with a guy who shall remain nameless, even though you wouldn't know his name if I told you. But he's a very, very, very big deal in investment banking. His name is not Warren Buffett, I assure you. He and I were just shooting the shit, and I had no idea what the trigger was, but he said to me, he said, Tom, what do you think the number one problem is of CEOs? And since I was born a smartass, I said, well, I can think of 50, but I'm not sure I can single one out. And uh, he's not humorless, but he was kind of humorless on this. He said, let me tell you, they don't read enough. I mean, it was a sentence. It's what, the way you just said it. One sentence popped out of his mouth. They do not read enough. Five words. And I have, again, God bless my mother, you know, back to the EQ kind of thing, who gave me an incredible head start. But yeah, it's always a great time to read. And it's always a great time to learn. And I do hope you had a great third and fourth grade teacher or mother or father who made you fall in love with reading. But it's not that it's a no-brainer. It's a no-choicer. 2020. And the more the AI comes in, the more it's a no choicer. And I have no intention of sitting here being a jerk and saying that it's great fun. It may or may not be great fun for you. It is great fun for me. You know, years and years ago, Vanity Fair had this thing they ran at the back and they asked famous people 10 questions. And Bloomberg was the mayor of New York at the time. And they said to Bloomberg, what do you think is your most important quality? 
And his answer was one word, curiosity. And it's just the need to dig into things and, and learn about it. I, it was interesting. I had a good friend who had a um, nonprofit that did a, a lot of technical stuff, did a lot of work in Africa. He sold the company for a pretty penny to somebody big, so it was extremely successful. And he and I had this conversation. It was not exactly your question, but it was very related. He said, most of my jobs are technical, but I won't hire anybody who doesn't have a hobby that's a great passion. And he said, I don't care whether it's collecting stamps or doing something, you know, knitting, even though you're a you know, Cornell graduate engineer male. I don't care what it is. I want to know that you're in love with something else that in that Bloombergian sense that is a measure of your curiosity for more than he's doing work in Africa than wastewater engineering, which I'm incredibly well trained in. I actually once won a prize in my wastewater course and got a free subscription for a whole year to the Wastewater Journal. Outstanding. Well, congratulations. I mean, <laughs> well, I laughed because right when I got out of school is when the environmental movement started. And I said, well, I took this course in wastewater management, and we used to call it two courses, shit one and shit two. <laughs> but now it became environmental sciences, and you could charge twice as much. Anyway, enough of that. Wow. You but, Warren, but you're right. You mentioned Warren Buffett Scott, earlier. Right. I think he spent You tell me. I mean, you answer the question. You answer both questions. Why the shit should I have to be the one that does all this? <laughs> you tell me about the two big questions that you've just asked. What do you think about empathy and reading? I think people are confused with sympathy and empathy. And I think they think they're being empathetic, but they're just being sympathetic. And I don't think they know the real difference. And I think that's where, when I say most of us suck at other, it's not that we don't want to be that way, or I just don't know that we truly understand what that really means and how yeah. to apply that. And so I, I think if, if we can get people over the hump on understanding that, I think that's critical. So, you know, and as for reading, you mentioned Warren Buffett earlier. We would agree that he spends most of his time over the course of the day sitting in line of desk reading materials uh, and learning things. And, and uh, so I don't think there's anything more important to, uh, I have reveled with the, the lockdown because it has afforded me so much time to, to read. I'm, I'm going nuts on it and I love it. I just wish more people, I think too many people, the last book they read was in school. And they haven't done anything since, and they're missing out on so much opportunity. Hey, I've kept you a lot longer than I wanted. I, I do have one thing about that because I totally agree, and it was really fascinating. I have a college roommate who's a leading pediatric cardiologist, and I asked him one time, I said, Frank, how in the hell do you guys keep up in today's world? And he got this big, he's Sicilian, he got this big shit-eating Sicilian grin on his face. And he said, oh, Tom. You so overrate doctors. He said, basically, 25% of them, when they get out of medical school, never read another journal article. He said, 50% of them at least kind of try a little bit to kind of keep up. And he said, the top 25% read their asses off. And he was then in his 60s, and, and he goes to a lot of conferences, and he said, I give papers in conferences. It's not because I want to give a paper to conference. It's because I don't want to embarrass myself. And so I've got to study enough to give a worthwhile thing. So it's not automatic. But studenthood is huge. It, uh, oh, only thing because, no, I'm keeping you. Then don't get me started, which you don't have time to. <laughs> a huge, a significant, I'm willing to use huge, 
part of solving the empathy problem is more women in leadership roles. Mm, It's not that you and I aren't, it's not that all males are schmucks and all women are great, but bell-shaped curves, on average, women are more empathetic and they do listen more than you and I do. I, I said something when there was some hospital fiasco a month and a half ago somewhere or other, I said, you know, I want to pass a law in Congress that said no males are allowed to be CEOs of hospitals. And I was obviously facetious at some level, but not entirely. I really believe that if you will put you in a bigger business now, if you had an executive team of 20 people and 10 of them were women, I think you'd make more money, but I think you'd also on these human dimensions have a, you know, there's, I remember I did a little reading, a woman wrote a prison deed wrote a book called The Female Brain. And the one thing that stuck in my mind is by the age of three days, baby girls are making five times more eye contact with their fellow human beings than you and I are. And that is that. That's indicative of the big thing we talked about a half an hour ago called community. And all the research says women are better leaders, better negotiators. And they also don't get caught up in your and my kind of competitive bullshit, so they're a lot better investors. <laughs> my favorite book in the world. Authors Lou Anne Lofton has the best title ever. Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl and Why You Should Too. And the book came out, and it's because, you know, I look at you, you're at the trading desk 10 feet away. You're doing better than I am today. So in the last hour, I do the dumbest shit known to humankind in hopes that I can get past you on July the 6th. And women aren't that stupid. Uh, but But at any rate, so I think you started right and we both started right in that regard. This is a wonderful time for rethinking fundamentals and relative to empathy or whatever you want to call it. I think we really do have an opportunity to redefine our organizations and back to your and my we both agreed with it you actually said it more firmly than i did what you do today is who you are as a human being for the rest of your life even if you're only 35 years old and have a life expectancy of uh 50 more to go and remember 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 never let it out of your mind resume virtues you will be virtues one final quick COVID-19 question. A lot of people think about management by wandering around when they think of Tom Peters. Uh, does that still work on Zoom? Does that still work when you're socially distanced? Yes. Managing by wandering around is actually not about physical space. It is a metaphor for really digging in and finding out what's on people's mind. I mean, obviously, in the MBWA thing, where we learned it at Hewlett-Packard, it's Bill Hewlett, which I once saw sitting down at a big old-fashioned computer terminal next to a 24-year-old engineer and talking like two guys who were old buddies. But you can do that on Zoom. Or you can do it on Zoom, plus these other incredible, sophisticated things like phones. If I watch you during a Zoom meeting and you and I work together for a while, I am the boss, and you really are tuned out. And we, we have a good relationship, but you're tuned out. And I can give you a call afterwards. You know, we can Zoom too. And I can say, look, you know, you're the greatest human being in the world. You've done more for the damn team than anybody else, but you really look like you're in a bad place. Is there anything I can do to help? And that can be done. And there are things that you shouldn't do, in my opinion, that, and I don't know much about this, but I was, again, it comes from a lot of the Twitter use I have. 
these software tools so that I can measure the amount of time that each person has contributed during a Zoom meeting. Bullshit. You know, there are things that need to be measured and things that don't. And particularly since which we don't have time to do, we don't have time to talk about the power of introverts. You know, as somebody said, the fact that you're not talking may actually mean, holy shit, he's thinking. So, well, to phrase it the way you would phrase it, give a shitism is an important practice, yes? <laughs> it is indeed. Love, love thy neighbor. Right. When I had a good Sunday school teacher at the age of eight who beat the crap out of us on love thy neighbor. <laughs> but that was what you did with little boys. Outstanding. Well, Tom, I've kept you for almost an hour, as uh, maybe I alluded to at the top of the show. Before we let you go, should anyone want to connect with you or learn more about your work, where do they go? TomPeters.com. Right. You know, Tom we Peters. literally, every single thing that I've done for the last 15 years is available for free at TomPeters.com. We 500 slideshows, papers of the kind that you were talking about. And so, again, it's not religion with a capital R, but I believe in giving it away, and I always have. Because I think it comes back to you. Yeah, I agree. Warning to the audience, uh, when you land on TomPeters.com, you get sucked in and you're there for hours. So uh, heads up going in. Tom, my friend, uh, so grateful for the time. Uh, good luck getting through these times and looking forward to seeing what you're doing next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. You take care. Best to you and your family. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for tuning in, Tom Peters, and we'll see you soon on The Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good, and we'll see you next time.